0: Okay, so last week we uh, walked through the doctrine of resurrection, and uh, we suggested that that ca- happens in stages. What are the stages of the uh, resurrection we talked about last week? The dead in Christ go first. Okay, well, actually not quite. I, no, no, have the dead in Christ. What? The ones that are dead that are in Christ. Okay. Right, but who goes before those? Who's the first fruits? Christ. Christ is the first fruits. Yeah, trick question, right? <laughs> Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead, um, and then uh, and then those who are his at his coming, uh, which include those who are dead in Christ, will rise first and precede those of us who are still alive, and then and then we suggested that this first resurrection is not even even it is not just a one one point time event because we we said that uh, when we when we get to uh, revelation twenty for instance, those who died during the tribulation rise and are judged we'll talk about their judgment tonight uh, but uh it, the 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 commentary in the book of revelation this is this is also the first resurrection, so those who are Christ at his coming include those at the rapture those who uh Die during the tribulation, and apparently, although we don't have a record, at least in the New Testament, of it, uh, the Old Testament saints must rise at some point too. Uh, although the the details of that are not given, we assume, uh, based on what we know of Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, that it is after these things. So after the tribulation, uh, in the context, so uh, so the, the this this, what is called the first resurrection in Revelation 20 would include all those who are Christ's at his various comings, as his two comings, if I may put it that way. And then what? What's the the last stage? Right. So so then the rest, right? So so then the end comes and the rest are are raised uh, and they, and John sees them small and great. Stand before God, and they're judged at the white throne, and so they are—they are judged at the end of the millennium. Okay, so at the close of the millennium, this is where this final judgment takes place, um, and uh, they are—they are raised in some sense, although we sort of raise the issue that uh, it's hard to call that glorified bodies, uh, because. You know glorified bodies sort of implies that there is no deficiency in them, but these bodies are actually going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and so we'll we'll talk about some of the implications of that um, and the role of burning in the final judgment okay so that's the uh that's the uh, resurrection. We talked a little bit about the uh about the body that we'll have um, and Really, the only thing we have to go on in terms of that is what? What, what do we know? What? Okay, yeah, so we will be like him. Uh, we know that when, when he comes, we will be like him. So basically, we have those few chapters at the end of each gospel in which we find Jesus, who has been raised, and we try and glean as much as we can, which is precious little, but enough to, to know a little. Uh, they're able to recognize him, although not immediately. Uh, some of them didn't recognize him immediately. Mary in the garden was uh, took a while for her to figure out who who, who he was. So apparently, there's a resemblance uh, to his previous existence, but he's improved, perhaps. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, perhaps the the lines of the scars and lines of weariness and uh, and the uh, you know, if you're hunched over or, or you know, yeah, as, as age happens, you know, you sort of wither away, sad to say, and, uh, and it appears that those things might be undone. And so perhaps that accounts for uh, the fact that they didn't recognize him instantly or immediately, although they eventually recognized him. It's hard to know. Um, did he, was he able to, you know, transport and go through walls? Some of the language sort of hints that way, perhaps. Although uh, there's there's enough wiggle room to say I'm not sure. You know, they the, they were in this room. The door was closed and locked, and he was suddenly in their midst. And so, what does that mean? Did he just suddenly, you
1: know, you know?
0: I, I, are you are you seeing, you know, Star Trek? One, you know, it I, I, it it may be that it could be that the miracle was he overcame the lock and walked in the door. It, it, there's not enough data to really say with certainty, but there's enough hints dropped that perhaps there's greater mobility uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, we don't have today, although it's hard to make any sort of firm statement about that. If okay. you can walk on water, I'm sure walking through a wall is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, so that's, that's the, uh, that's the uh, Doctrine of Regeneration. Uh, Excuse me, uh, resurrection. Uh, But then what happens when we're raised? Why immediately afterwards there's a judgment. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Some of the judgments we're going to look at tonight are actually quite positive. Uh, The reward is meted out and not punishment. And that's because uh, the nature of divine judgment is such that God must reward the good and punish the evil. And so uh, there is. This is this is this is what justice is all about. And so judgment is necessary to God's nature. Judgment for sin is not God getting revenge or becoming angry uh, with people. Uh, judgment is an expression of the wrath of God. In fact, we talk about the wrath of God is not an attribute per se, but the settled disposition the staid and settled disposition of God against sin. So don't think of God flying off the handle. Although his, his judgment is severe, it is, it, it is always controlled because that's part of the impassibility of God. He, he does not become passionate in the exercise of his judgment. It is a staid and necessary exercise of justice, uh, which is the wrath of God. Uh, it's sourced in his disposition, not passions, that we would attribute to him. And so why must he do this? Well, because his eyes are too pure to approve of evil. He must disapprove of it. And because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Okay? And all that we know about justice must be funneled through what we know about God. Okay, I know there's a lot of talk about justice these days, but... Much of what goes as justice uh, in uh, in our present day really doesn't correspond to biblical justice. Justice is God's perfect conformity to His own nature and His His administration of His universe according to those just standards. Okay, so it it is all relative to God. Uh, So it's not a matter. It's not a matter of equity. It's not a matter of revenge. It's a conformity to the divine expectation that's necessary. And it's essential, then, to what is truly universal justice. It's not only an assault on God's character to overlook sin, it's also an affront to the righteous who throughout life have observed the prosperity of the wicked. And we find several chapters of, of, of discussion of this. You know, Habakkuk, just for, for much of the first chapter is just distressed by the fact that God is being trodden down and his people are being abused and he just longs for justice to be established. This is where, this is where he says here, your, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. So, so, so make things right, okay? And, and it's, a, it's a plea uh, that this uh, prophet makes. Psalm 73 is given over to that, yeah. God just set things straight, uh, because it's for so long been wrong. Uh, wrong is, right has been declared wrong, and wrong has been declared right, and and just put it back together the way it's supposed to be. And there's this appeal, and, and, and it's and it's a longing uh, in every in every holy and righteous person who is a saint before God uh, to see everything uh, put in order again. Okay, and it's necessary to universal justice. It will be a, it will be a pleasing thing. It will be, we, we not that God is just delighted by it, but there is there is a certain pleasure. It is God's good pleasure to see sin punished because it's right. Okay, and so there is a certain satisfaction, not glee, but a certain satisfaction that occurs uh, when righteousness is established. Okay. So these judgments that take place at the end of time are not so much an inquiry as to the character, motives, and actions of persons. That's already happened. God knows everything. There's no, no need for him to establish whether people are righteous or not. He knows this already. It's not a, it's not a court uh, in which we're trying to establish guilt or, uh, or innocence here. It's rather, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sentencing hearing, if I can put it that way. OK, so and it's not a remedial chastening either. OK, so uh, oftentimes what we have in courts today is there's a there's a, a chastening that is for a period uh, that is designed to rehabilitate someone so that they can reenter into society and, and such. Uh, that's not what we have here. This is punitive. So it's not remedial, uh, but punitive. Uh, so uh, this judgment reveals the works of men's and men and meets out appropriate reward or punishment. God the Father is the ultimate judge. He's the judge of all, and so we will all give an account of ourselves to God. but he generally gives all judgment over to the Son. And there's some reasons for that that are given. okay? John 5:22 to 20, and 27, Not even the Father judges everyone, rather he has given all judgment to the Son. He has given him the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man, or as I'm going to suggest here, probably should be translated, a Son of Man. Uh, Acts 17, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through this man. He has appointed, what man? Well, the one he rose from the dead. He raised from the dead, so uh, so there's no question here that Jesus is assigned the principal role in judging sin, and the reasons are given here. The reason is given here in John five twenty seven because he is a son of man, and uh, I know your translation uh, perhaps says the son of man, uh, but it is interesting as if you look in the original languages there is no article there. Uh, it says that he is a son of man, um, which. Uh, points to his quality. That is, he is a human. Okay? Uh, and, uh, remember in, uh, in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, they call the humans sons of Adam, right? Okay? So they're, they're sons of man. It, talks to their, it, ta- it speaks to their quality. They are humans. Okay? And the reason Jesus is afforded this special privilege of judging is because he is a son of man. He is, he is human. Therefore, he's like us. He understands us, and you know, at at the same time, uh, he was also the perfect exemplar of what a human ought to be. So when we get to heaven, you know, if, if you know, if you're in, on the on the wrong side, uh, you, you, you could say, you know, how how could I help it? I'm only human. What's well, Jesus' response? Well, so am I, <laughs> and so that is why he's given this. Uh, authority. So as God, he has all knowledge <coughs> and discernment for judgment. So he knows who's guilty, who's not guilty, he knows the extent of their guilt and he is able to know perfectly uh, all of the motives and the intentions and is able to mete out perfect justice. Because I am he. This is Jesus speaking. I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But as a human, he understands human experience from the inside as well. The Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is a son of man. He understands what it is to be human. And so, uh, so there's, there's, this, there's this sympathy uh, that Hebrews talks about. He, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our plight because he was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. So, so he is a judge who actually understands uh, what it means to be human, and how difficult it is uh, to be righteous, live righteously in this world, and so so he understands all that. But as the God Man, then he's uniquely qualified to serve as the judge and the mediator because he is both. He he has his feet in both um, both situations. So there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the Man Christ Jesus, and so he's God. He's human. There it is. He's one God. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And this makes him qualified to be the liaison between humanity and God. So Jesus is the primary agent of judgment here. So what judgments are there? Well, first we have the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes called the bima. Uh, that's the Greek word that's used here. So the bema seat of Christ. Actually, bema is Translation of bema is seat. So to talk about the bema seat is to talk about the seat seat. Uh, so it's either the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. So when does this take place? Well, we've got a couple of uh, places here that are described. First uh, and Second Corinthians probably have our have our biggest sections here where we discuss this. First Corinthians four, uh, three and four, and then Second Corinthians five are probably our longest discussions of this event here, but they're, we're not, they're not, that, that's not the totality of what the Bible says, but it's probably the largest section. So uh, when does this take place? Well, firstly, uh, we find the time that happens immediately after the rapture of the church. So 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, will expose the motives of the heart. And that, at that time everyone will receive their praise from God, their praise from God. Note here that this is being the judgment seat of Christ. It is for believers who have been raised at the rapture, and so each one of them is going to get a reward. Okay, we're going to see that detailed uh, in just a bit here. But so the, the emphasis here is on the praise that we receive, the level of praise, the, uh, the extent of the praise seems to be different for individuals, uh, but praise will accrue to all in this case. So it's, it's, not, a, it's, not, it's not a judgment of, of punishment here, uh, but rather one of praise. Some get little praise, and some get a lot of praise, and for that reason, perhaps there will be you know, this this, uh, feelings of regret. Uh, I wish I'd done more. uh, But everyone will receive his praise from God, according to this. So everyone will receive something. Uh, Revelation 22, right at the very end of the book, Behold, I'm coming quickly with my reward to render to every man according to what he has done. So this is the promise. And then, you know, what's John wraps up the book by saying, even so, come quickly. Okay. And so he's coming with his reward in hand, as it were. Okay? And so, so we find here that those who participate in this are those who are his at his coming. Okay, so the we here in the pertinent text probably includes Paul and his readers and those who are his at his coming. Okay? And so when this happens at resurrection. Uh, that's when we get this. So, so the basis then of this judgment is the believer's post-conversion works. It's important to to recognize this. I, I think sometimes we get a little bit antsy when we talk about works as a as a as a as a, as a factor in this judgment because you know we you know we're relentlessly told it's not by works of righteousness that you've done but his mercy and his righteousness on our account that fits us for heaven. And it's true. At the same time, we find, you know, oftentimes those passages, it's not by works of righteousness. Uh, It's not of works lest any man should boast. But what's the next verse? We are his workmanship. Created for good works, which God has destined for us to do. Right? So, 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 don't imagine that, you know, and, and I think sometimes it, in, our, in our concern to make sure that works don't contribute to our justification, we can sometimes communicate that works aren't all that important, are not necessary, and, or that they really don't count for anything. But they do. They do count for something. They count at the judgment seat of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 3 says this, right? So, each man's work will become evident. And the day will show it. It will be revealed as with fire, which will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it, the foundation here in verse 12, if, if any man's work remains, he will receive a reward. But if his work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, so there will be those in the last day who will receive meager reward. Okay? Every man will receive praise from God, so it's not as though anyone will have no works and no reward, uh, but some will have more than others. 2 Corinthians 5, I think, furthers this a little bit here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may be... Recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, so, according to what we have done, we will receive reward, great reward, meager reward, but we will all receive some reward. Okay, and so the result then is rewards that are commensurate with our service. Uh, so, the amount of work we have done to build on the foundation. The apostles and Christ have laid is going to be the foundation here. So whatever good one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. In fact, we will find in the Gospels even a cup of cold water offered in my name will, will have its reward. And you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And if you sow sparingly, the reward will be spare. But if you sow bountifully, the reward will be bountiful. Again, note that there's no punitive language here attached to the judgment. It's not a judgment for the sins committed after you've been converted. Christ's sacrifice took care of those. Although there is something of a negative aspect to the judgment, that is, it's expressed in terms of meager reward or the loss, withholding of anticipated reward, it would seem, though, that all believe believers have at least some reward each one will have his have his reward from Christ okay so everyone will receive nothing but uh, something uh, but not all will receive the same yes yeah the ones that are burned out. or superficial or or something that ultimately is not properly motivated you know you know i mean and and we we know that there are people you know who come to church and you know, might be here every week, but they don't participate, don't contribute to the life of the body and and uh they might imagine that they're going to be fine, but when they get there it's going to be you know you didn't do much. You didn't, you didn't serve Christ very, very aggressively. And so they'll anticipate more than they receive. But everyone, I think that, But the point that's made here is that everyone will receive his, his reward from God. Um, meager or bountiful, everyone will be getting something. Next question here, in the little text box here, is what, what kind of rewards are we going to get? Okay, what what what's it going to look like? I know a lot of the language that's used, particularly in Revelation, is that of crowns, right? You'll receive a crown of righteousness. You'll re, receive a crown of faithfulness. Um, and so, there's this this term crown is used, and uh, it's possible that there are literal crowns in view. You know, I. I you know, when I was younger, I had sort of had a picture of you know somebody with, I got I got five crowns and they're all sort of stacked up on top of my head. But uh, but it's probably a metaphorical use of this. So you are so if you receive if you're crowned with joy, it doesn't mean you have a crown with joy written on it, but you're given joy, or a crown of life is not so much a crown with life written on it, but you're crowned with Abundant life, and so on and so forth. So the so the crowns are not so much the, you know, the little gold things that you stick on your head, but rather you're crowned with these uh, with these benefits and these uh, these these uh, uh, blessings that you receive. Okay. Now the fact is that uh, part of the picture is complicated by the fact that the twenty four elders in Revelation four ten cast their crowns before the Lamb. Okay, this is, I think there's perhaps been a little bit of confusion with that, uh, with that, uh, with that picture there. Uh, the, the 24 elders are not defined. Uh, some have suggested that they are representative of the church, but there's actually nothing that says that as much. Some suggest that they are you know, representatives of the apostles and representatives of the 12 tribes, and together they are the whole people of God, but there's really nothing that says who they are. Okay? Um, uh, some have suggested okay they 're representative of the church, and therefore their actions are representative of what the rest of us are going to do at this time as well but again these are these this is sort of a a speculative uh kind of argument i, I know there's a there 's a you know, there's a music group called casting crowns but uh, it it 's not clear anywhere that all of us are going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. I know this is this is a this is an idea that's perpetuated, but there's really no real basis for it uh, in in the scriptures, other than the fact that these 24 elders did that. Okay, um, and so it's it's actually fairly slender evidence that this will happen. Okay, and so while it's possible that we'll receive literal crowns, um, I think we should. Conclude that this is not the primary nature of the reward that we receive. Okay, see if I can't uh, point this out here. First, the connection between the twenty-four out El- the actions of the twenty-four elders and those of church saints really is not certain. First, second, while it is true that there would be great pleasure involved in reciprocating to Christ what has been given to us, that this seems to sort of violate the whole purpose of these rewards. Uh, The rewards that we receive are described in many cases as eternal rewards, okay? But uh, what we have here is sort of a picture of everybody gets their rewards, they take their crowns off and cast them at Jesus' feet, and everybody's even again. Everybody's equal again. The only only satisfaction you add is you've got to throw more crowns than somebody else did. And, And at that point, everybody's even. That doesn't seem to be match what we understand about the nature of the reward. The rewards that we receive are eternal in nature, not something that is just fleeting. We get it and then give it back. Okay, uh, It's rather an imperishable crown. Um, Paul sometimes references crowns in a figurative way. In fact, he says here that you are my crown to his readers. Uh, so apparently an indication here that... Uh, the satisfaction that he'll have for all eternity, that uh, because of his efforts, uh, in part, uh, there's, a, there's a crowd of people that were converted and discipled and grew in Christ, and this is his crown. Uh, he, he, in fact, identifies this as his crown. So he's not thinking in this term of a literal gold crown here, but rather this the, the satisfaction in eternity of seeing the, the, the lasting results of his efforts for Jesus Christ is his crown. Okay? Which gives us, then, a sense of the kinds of rewards uh, that are there. Okay? It's reasonable, then, to understand the crown language in other than a literal way. And uh, So, what's the conclusion? In view of the preceding, it's my understanding and I, I grant that there's, there's gaps here that we'd like to fill in that we just can't, that, that these crowns consist of eternal life itself, we're crowned with life, the satisfaction of seeing the continuing results of one's Christian service, we will see, as Paul does, our crowns. You know, the, the, Those whose lives we've touched, those who we've discipled, those who we've given the gospel to and they've responded, there will be an enormous satisfaction for all eternity seeing those people around us. Okay? And so that's one of the crowns, pretty clearly. And perhaps heightened capacities, to either to enjoy eternity, we would receive a crown of joy, or to exercise authority. Remember the, uh, the parable, and I recognize it's a parable, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but the one who was faithful in little was given authority over cities. Okay, so uh, perhaps authority uh, within the the administration of the kingdom and in eternity, uh, or perhaps a greater experience of joy and satisfaction. Uh, These are the kinds of things that are described as the rewards uh, that are received by believers and so while we don't have a complete picture of what all the rewards might be, I think we have enough, we can cobble it together to give, get a, at least a sense of the kinds of rewards that we will receive. But I, I, I don't imagine that this is an exhaustive uh, description of those rewards. Thoughts on that? Does that make sense? that follow? I don't know if anybody likes casting crowns here, but it sort of, sort of hollows things out there. <laughs> Okay, so that's the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. There seems to be a similar judgment that takes place for tribulation martyrs. It's only fleeting in its description here in Revelation 20, I saw thrones. They sat upon them, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded during the tribulation because of their testimony for Christ and because of the word of God, but had not worshipped the beast or his image or received the mark on their forehead, on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there has to be a resurrection, positive resurrection, of these folks who died during the seven years. And it apparently takes place immediately after... Uh, the rapture, and before the millennium, because that's where it fits in the, uh, in, the, in the descriptors here in Revelation 20. So it happens during those 75 days between the tribulation and the millennium. Participants, tribulation martyrs, the basis of judgment is their faithfulness during that short window uh, that they had between their conversion and their death during the tribulation, it's going to be a savage time here. So a lot of these people uh, will convert and, and, uh, and will die. And the result then apparently is rank in the millennial kingdom. They come to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. Okay. Some question here as to who is actually judging these folks. Um, and it's, it's not clear. It doesn't seem like it's Jesus. Uh, Some suggest perhaps that it should be angels, uh, because they do execute judgment in the uh, Bible pretty routinely, but we don't actually find them in a judicial role. Uh, They observe the judicial assessment, but they don't officiate uh, during during this. So angels don't judge people, people judge angels, right, Uh, Hebrews 2 tells us. So it probably isn't angels. Some suggest that perhaps church saints do this. You know, they've been given—I mean, we do know that they've been given some authority to judge, uh, even within the life of the church. You know, those who—you know—those who are bound in heaven are loosed, uh, bound on earth, or bound in heaven; those who are loosed on earth are loosed in heaven. And so there is this adjudication that takes place within the life of the church, uh, determining. You know the the uh, the the, the position and rank and and uh, and uh, behavior of those uh, in in church discipline. So perhaps it's these. It's hard to know, uh, but uh, we we do know that there are judges uh, that participate in this. It's hard to say much more. There's also apparently a judgment for Old Testament saints as well that takes place. Uh, after the millennium, the reason we say this is because Daniel, and Daniel, Daniel, of course, asks this question, when are these things going to happen? Talking about the 70 weeks, and, the, you know, and, and, he, and after he's talked about the 70th week, and, which is clearly a reference here to the tribulation, um, and, and, and he asks God, you know, when are these things going to happen? Close up the book. God says, and uh, unto the end, and at the end, uh, there will be a, a, the the your people will rise to receive their allotted portion at the end of the age. So it appears that Old Testament saints, Old Testament Israel, is raised at the close of the millennium and uh, receive their reward as well. and So it's probably very similar to the judgment seat of Christ, but it does seem to be at a different time. These are Old Testament saints, uh, who, uh, everyone who's found written in the name of the book and who sleep in the dust of the earth are come to life again here. And uh, Daniel 12 says that it's based on the Jews' wisdom and efforts to lead many to righteous, uh, that will be the basis for reward. So faithfulness in the Old Testament economy uh, to, uh, to, to live righteously and also to lead others to righteousness will be the basis of reward. And they will shine like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars forever and ever. And they will receive at that time the allotted inheritance, which would include... Probably not limited to, but would be it would include a land, the land promises that, uh, of course, Hebrews 11 says they all died, not having received the promise. Well, they're going to come back to life and receive their allotted inheritance, Daniel 12 says. okay? So there's a reward there. And then there's also a judgment of living Israel that takes place at the very end of uh, the millennium as well. So those who survive, the tribulation and enter into the millennium in their natural bodies, will continue to live lives in their natural bodies, which would include sin and and righteousness and uh, the birth of new children. So there will be a period, a season, in which there are there are more people who uh, who. Uh, are introduced to the earth both Jew and Gentile and they will have to have a judgment as well the righteousness the righteous of these will receive reward and the unrighteous will receive punishment here okay so at the end of the age there's a judgment of living Israel and living Gentiles this is not the final judgment the unsaved are put to death and consigned to the flames but will receive final judgment at the second resurrection of the great white throne. So it follows that there is a final judgment for the saved at the close of the millennium as well, when millennial saints receive their resurrection bodies. They have to get their resurrection body sometime, and their eternal inheritance. Although the Bible doesn't really describe this, it's one of those things of theological necessity. Uh, They have to get their resurrection body, and they have to receive their rewards uh, when does it happen? Probably at the end of the millennium, but we really don't have a description of the event. So at the close of the tribulation, wise in the foolish version perhaps uh, anticipates this. Remember, there are, uh, at, the, at the end of this age, there will be some who will be faithful and some who will be unfaithful. Um, and so some of these will enter into the tribulation and, and, and into the millennium and some won't. Uh, Jews who survive the tribulation will get into the millennium. Uh, those who are the tares are taken and burned. Okay. Um, and so the basis of their judgment is their response to the kingdom message. 144,000 are sealed, and these become them ambassadors of the gospel to the rest of the world. And apparently they have considerable success. And those uh, who convert enter into the millennium. Okay. Unbelieving Jews are put to death and excluded from the kingdom. Believing Jews enter into the kingdom. And so the same thing happens with Gentiles as well. So at the end of the tribulation, after true Israel is restored in those days and that at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and then I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will enter into judgment against them. He will come in all his glory with his angels with him, sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other, as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. The sheep enter into the kingdom; the goats are destroyed. Okay, and so it's these are the goyim, the Gentiles, the ethne, and uh, all these have uh, a Gentile overtones here—non-Jewish people. Uh, No, no, this, apparently, yeah, apparently, yes, they, they're, they're, they are, they are burned, Uh, but this is, but again, it's not until the next, until after the, the the millennium uh, that we find that the dead, small and great, stand before God at the great white throne judgment, which is their final judgment. So apparently this is, they're put to death, uh, but this is not the final judgment at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, there's there are some details of Hoyt that I'm I'm not quite quite there, uh, but general, in general I like his outline and uh, so that's why I've, I've assigned it. I think he does better than anyone else in terms of just pedantically walking through the through the, uh, through the sequence of events. But there are some details of which I'm I have some hesitation. Okay, so what then is the final judgment for the damned? Well, that's the great white throne judgment. So after the millennium, after the thousand years are completed, uh, the rest of the dead, those over whom the second death have power, they didn't come to life until the thousand years are completed, and then after those thousand years, I see a great white throne one who sits upon it and the dead are judged and he sees the dead is small and great uh, Hades this place Sheol Sheol Hades you know regurgitates its dead and they all stand before God and these awaken it's the kind of language that you that are is some, often attached to regeneration uh but uh, we shouldn't think of this as a spiritual awakening, but there is a, a they, they apparently receive some physical form at this time. Again, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a glorified body uh, because it is a, a, a body that's destined for destruction. Um, at the same time, they do seem to have some sort of a form attached uh, to them. Um, and so they stand before God, small and great. And they awake, Daniel says, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What a what a terrible thing to have, you know, you're you you, you have this you finally are restored to some sort of a consciousness of world events and a, and a and a and a and a form only to discover that it's it's well, not that it's temporary, but it's it's you know, it's 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 not going to be a positive experience here. And the basis for this, they're excluded from the book of life. The books are opened. If your name's not there, then you're in trouble. And then there's other books. There's some question as to what these other books are. You know, again, there's no details as to what these other books are. Apparently, uh, based on what we know from elsewhere in Scripture, these are uh, records of their evil deeds some were worse than others. Remember uh, when we come, when we, when Jesus is in Capernaum and he's trying to, you know, share his, his credentials, his messianic credentials, and they reject him and they, they, you know, they're, they're very cruel to him. And what's his word? Well, in the day of judgment, it's going to be better for those in Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Okay. So, so and perhaps this is what might be contained in the other books again we we're, we're, we have to speculate but we have at least some data that can at least we can piece together to at least uh, come up with some at least some reasonable theories about what's going on so yeah you know, when when those who are in hell are uh, given their eternal demerit their eternal reward as it is some will suffer more than others. Uh, so it's, you know, we, we sometimes talk about, well, all sin's the same. Well, yes and no. I mean, it, any sin is enough to condemn. But there are some sins that are worse than others, right? And uh, the reason we know that uh, is statements like Jesus makes in Capernaum. It's going to be worse for some of you than for others. So apparently what these people in Capernaum did... You know, you know, sinning in the face of a manifestation of God Himself standing in front of them. Apparently, what they did is actually worse than what the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah were doing, which was pretty bad. But this is worse, and it's hard to know. You know, sometimes the standard by which uh, God determines what's good, bad, worse. Uh, but uh, there there are those standards, and I think we find that in the Old Testament law. There's, there's certain sins uh, for which there is no sacrifice for sin, right? You know, you're, you're put to death. Why? Well, because there were sins, right? You know, cer- certain sins are worse than others. Some, you receive a fine, and then you're restored back to your place in society. Uh, you know, some, you have to offer a a pigeon. Sometimes you have to offer an ox, you know, because some sins are worse than others, uh, and then there's some that for which there is no uh, animal sacrifice that is sufficient, and so capital punishment is is the result here. Yeah. The uh, section of New Testament scripture you're referring to, where Jesus said that uh, it'll be worse for you than those of Sodom and Gomorrah, is that when they accused Jesus of uh, restoring life or casting out a demon using Satan's power—it's—it's it's not that exact, but it's—but it's a similar situation. They're—they're, yeah—they're—they're they're rejecting his miracles, which were abundant there, and just you know dismissing them as sleight of hand, and and so it's a, this is this is very troubling. Um, you now we've also got Romans one, right? That there there are those who commit what he calls natural sins and then once they have completely closed off and they they they've completely closed off god and they've suppressed him to the point that god gives him gives them over to what to to worse sins right so so unnatural sins okay and so again there there seems to be this idea that there are some sins that make more sense than others some are just totally corrupt, and, and I mean, it's, it is interesting that some of the sins that are there that are the same sins that are capital crimes in the Old Testament, okay, uh, and so these are, the, these, are, these are the worst sins, these are the worst, and so apparently these receive a greater judgment uh, than than lesser sins. It, it, it's not as though there's reward assigned uh, for for only committing small sins, it's just less punishment, uh, but, uh, but apparently, there are levels of punishment there. Okay, and the result is that they're all put into the lake of fire. They're judged according to their deeds, uh, given perhaps gradations of punishment uh, based on the level of the sins that they committed. I don't know what that means. You know, Dr. McCune used to talk tongue-in-cheek about uh, their their. Some you know, some people are going to have a really hot place in hell. Uh, I mean, it's tongue-in cheek, but there, there's something to that. You know there are some who are going to be punished more severely than others. but all are judged. We also know that the fallen angels are judged at probably the same time and probably in conjunction here with the great white throne. Um, and we find. Bits and pieces of information about the fact that there will be a judgment of angels. Uh, 1 Corinthians six three. Paul seems to make this sort of statement. Well, you know, you're just going to you're going to be judging angels, and it's like, I didn't know, but <laughs> but but uh, thanks for letting me know. So so we get we get these little hints and pieces that we're going to judge angels. Uh, Jude six. Uh, we find that angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about that one here, but apparently there are some some uh, angels who commit particularly heinous sins uh, that are incarcerated, that they are put into this abyss. Um, you know, remember the. Uh, uh, the, the demoniac of Gadara, who had a legion of demons in him. And Jesus commands them to go out. And what's, what's, what, it's rather a curious situation, right? And they said, well, please, please don't make us go to the abyss. Apparently, they recognized that they had done something worthy of being incarcerated in this abyss. And, uh, Jesus actually accommodates them. It's, it's hard to know why, but, but, but he says, okay, you can go into the pigs and they run off the cliff and it's hard to know what happens to the demons after that. But, uh, but, uh, but apparently uh, there are they had done something particularly evil. They had left their first domain. My, my best guess is that those angels which experiment with corporeality, uh, that, that want to... Inhabit humans uh, to uh, to experiment with bodily function. Uh, perhaps are the ones who have left their purely spiritual domain and have intruded on the physical. Uh, perhaps this is what it is. Uh, again, we're we're grasping here, but. Uh, uh, but it, it's perhaps this connect, there's a connection here that can be made. But apparently there are some that are incarcerated because w- when we get to Revelation 9, what happens? There's this there's this abyss, there's this there's this pit, and over it is this angel called Abaddon who has the key to the pit. And in Rev in Revelation 9, what does he do? He unlocks it, and all these hideous creatures come out. So apparently these these incarcerated angels that are there temporarily until the judgment of the last day are actually given some some freedom which is why the tribulation becomes so bad it's kind of like it's kind of like the storming of the Bastille right you know uh, they they opened up the prison opened up the prisons and all the worst element of society is now released into into the french community and 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 the havoc was just horrific right uh, that's exactly what's going to happen in the uh, in the Reve- in, in, in the book of revelation on a much greater scale so all of the worst demons are going to be released at this time and uh, and do their do their worst uh so so apparently there are some who are incarcerated but this is not the final judgment where we find here uh, that uh um, angels who did not who are are kept in this place uh, are going to be Brought out and then consigned to the lake of fire. Okay? And presumably there's also a judgment for millennial saints as well when they receive their glorified bodies, uh, and perhaps a judgment for good angels too. But, you know, the Bible is silent on these. Uh, Some suggest there's no need for a judgment for good angels because they have their reward, but uh, it, it makes sense that they would have. You know, at least have an awards assembly, um, but it's uh, it's hard to say. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the judgments that take place alternately good and uh, positive, and also negative. So, any questions on these judgments that uh, will occur? Oh, corporeal. So they they experiment with uh, material or corporeal, bo- corp, corp, yeah, the body. So they, they they experiment with having bodies. <laughs> yeah. Corpus is Latin for body. So that's when we get the word corpse, and we also get the uh, corporation is a yeah. body. So so, yeah. Uh, where, where are we now? And what, what, what was the question? It says, "Not even the Father judges anyone." Anyway. Right. Okay. Because I just checked. I looked it up in the NIV ESV. The Father judges no one. Okay. Yeah. I I think this is old NIV. Uh, so, so NIV nineteen eighty four. Yes. I, it, it, it was a little bit of an awkward translation, but I, I think that's the point. So God, the father doesn't do all the judging. He's actually given it over to his son. No. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so it, 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 the point seems to be that the father is not the, the, uh, the, the executor here. Uh, he's, he gives that responsibility to the son. So it's, it's, that's not his role. It's the son's role to judge. Not that he couldn't, but the, but the son is more suited, suited to the role of judging than the father is because of who he is. Okay? Okay, well, let you out a few minutes early. Uh, and uh, next week we will cover uh, the uh, doctrine of the eternal state. Uh, Specifically, the doctrines of hell and of heaven. And that'll be the uh, end of the course. Okay? We'll see you next week, Lord willing.